0: Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 78. Psalm 78. Um, the sermon will be over the whole psalm, but we will read from verses 1 to 39 at the moment. A maskil of Asaph. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded to our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and they, and that they should, be, should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. The Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back on the day of battle, They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zon. He divided the sea and let them pass through it, and he made the waters stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud and all the night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused rivers to flow down like, caused waters to flow down like rivers. Yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob, and his anger arose against Israel, because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. Yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven, and he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the rain, the grain of heaven. Man ate of the bread of the angels. He sent them food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he led out the south wind. He rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the seas. He let them fall in the midst of their camp, all around their dwellings, and they ate and were filled, for he gave them what they craved. But before, they had, been sa- they had satisfied their craving, while their food was still in their mouths. The anger of God rose against them, and he killed the strongest of them, and laid low the young men of Israel. In spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. So he made their days vanish like a breath, and their years in terror. When he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock, the Most High God, their Redeemer. But they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated.
1: Bow with me as we go in prayer. Almighty Father, your word is true. Your statutes are excellent. Your wisdom is perfect. I pray, Lord, that you will open our eyes this morning to the commandments that are in your word, that you will strengthen us as we reflect now on your glorious works, that we may not be like our fathers who forgot you, that we may set our hope on you. Use this morning to convict us of sin, that we may not be an unbelieving or rebellious people. Lord, keep me from error now, and may you be glorified. We all this in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. What well, is good to be with you all this morning. Uh, it's been a pleasure and a, uh, just an awesome experience to go through a series of psalms uh, over the summer as we give uh, Ryan a much-deserved break. It's just been uh, an honor to be up here as well, just bringing you the word. It's, it's humbling, it's challenging, but it's also uh, a richly rewarding experience. And so I thank you so much for... Uh, and the other elders as well, for just having this opportunity to bring the word uh, this morning. Psalm 78 is long. We're going to try to cover it um, in less than an hour. No, just joking. We're going to be well less than an hour unless something else happens. There's a famous quote. Maybe you've heard. uh, Those who uh, cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. heard that phrase before. Uh, Winston Churchill famously paraphrased this after World War II. uh, Those who fail to to listen to history are doomed to repeat it. We don't naturally want to repeat the failures of other people, right? We want to do good. We want to do well. We don't want to fail at things. So looking back at how other people have failed, the mistakes that those people have made can help us going forward. Studying those mistakes, looking at those mistakes, can instruct us for today, as well as tomorrow in the future, that we may avoid making similar mistakes in our own lives. Well, some 3,000 years before either of these uh, quotes were made, the author of Psalm 78 provides a history for us. It's a similar warning about forgetting what came before, it's a history lesson from the nation of Israel. Four times in Psalm 78, he calls out the people in different generations for forgetting God. They did not remember the works that God had done for them. And rather than learn from past mistakes, subsequent generations fell into these repeated patterns of failing. Those who do not learn from the past, are doomed to repeat it. James Montgomery Boyce has a good quote. He says, The lesson of Psalm 78 is that history must not repeat itself. The people must never again be unbelieving. So how do we ensure that we ourselves are not an unbelieving people? I think the message of Psalm 78 is that we must remember what God has done for us. Psalm 78 is a call to remember God's deeds, his power, his might, his wonders. And by remembering his wonderful works, we see his goodness, his mercy, his justice, his wrath, his love, and throughout the entire chapter, his faithfulness to his people. Even when we, even when his people are unfaithful to him. By remembering what God has done, we can fight off ingratitude, idolatry, unbelief, and outright rebellion against God. Now, this is easier said than done because we are forgetful people. I forget what I did yesterday, much less what God did for me a year ago. So let's look this morning at the scripture and see what scripture says to help us avoid forgetting what God has done that we may avoid the failures of our forefathers. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there's some on the back table. I encourage you to open up your uh, word, uh, the word of God in front of you, or pull it up on your smartphone. Just no distractions, all right? I want you to see the word of God here this morning. Before we dive into Psalm 78, the content, uh, I do want to make a quick note about some of the poetic structure of Psalm 78 before we start. Um, it's not something I'm going to use a lot. I'm going to refer to it, but I think it is something that's helpful and can be beneficial for us to kind of understand um, the structure of the, of the chapter. Um, there are seven stanzas. Um, depending on your translation in English, you may not necessarily see them, depending on how they're broken out, so I'll explain that in just a second. Um, and there's 77 lines. As you remember, uh, the number seven has a lot of symbolism. It's a um, symbol of perfection or completion. I think the author of Psalm 78 here is using the number 7 very intentionally uh, here this morning. Uh, depending on how uh, the uh, word of God is broken up, which, depending on which translation you have, uh, you may kind of see some of the divisions, so I'm going to point out some of them. Um, the first uh, stanza is 11 lines in Hebrew. Um, it's verses 1 through 8, so that's an introduction. Uh, and then we have a period of a kind of repeating pattern. Uh, We have verses 9 to 16 as stanza 2, and it's 8 lines in Hebrew. Verses 17 to 31 is the third stanza, and those are 16 lines in Hebrew. Verses 32 to 39 is the fourth stanza, and that's 9 lines. And then we see this repeating. We see 16 lines and then 9 lines again. So verses 40 to 55, 56 to 64, those 16 and 9 uh, pattern repeating. And then the last stanza is eight lines in Hebrew, verses 65 to 72. Now, why do I bring this up? Uh, so between, with, within these stanzas in Hebrew, um, you know, the Western idea of poetry is not as common or not really used a lot in, in uh, Hebrew poetry. So something that we see a lot of in Hebrew poetry is parallelism. So parallelism is the re- repetition of an idea or the contrasting of an idea of two different ideas within different stanzas or sometimes just verses side by side. So parallelism, we're going to see frequently between lines and stanzas and verses in Psalm 78 is used for emphasis. It's not just the author forgetting that he literally just said something he just said. Uh, and it's not something that's tedious as we read something like, we're, he, just, he just said that, why is he saying it again? So in Hebrew, when, a, when an author is using this kind of repetition between stanzas and lines... It's a point of emphasis and something that we need to flag and mention and we need to take notice of it. Um, as well, um, the, uh, the uh, poetic structure um, as well can help to guide sometimes how we interpret verses uh, when they're in, in particular contexts. So I'm going to be referring this to a couple times, but I'm not going to necessarily be following the pattern or the, the order of Psalm 78 this morning, but I'm going to draw out some themes and some lessons I think the Lord would have us hear from Psalm 78 this morning. So with all that being said, I have three main points, if you're taking notes, and then we have some application for our lives from Psalm 78 this morning. So point number one is listen. Listen to what he has to say. Point number two is tell. Tell the children. Tell the coming generation. And point number three, and where we're going to spend the bulk of our time, is Remember. Remember what God has done for us. So let's dive in. Look there at verse 1. Listen. He says, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. So many of the uh, wisdom verses, uh, the wisdom books, wisdom chapters in the Old Testament, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, a lot of them have these kind of phrases. Listen, incline your ear. Because if you're going to gain wisdom, if you're going to hear what I'm saying, if you're going to gain insight, you must listen. You must pay attention. This is the author calling his people to pay attention. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. So the author here is going to use parables or stories that have a lesson. They have a meaning behind them. Uh, This verse is actually quoted of Christ himself in the New Testament. Uh, The dark sayings here doesn't mean it's something that's bad, something that's wrong, uh, but it's something that's difficult to understand, something that may not be immediately apparent to us. In verse 3, he's highlighting that these these are not things that you've never heard before, but these are things that are from of old, something that our forefathers and our fathers have told us. They have been passed down to us. So if you want wisdom, listen, he calls he changes focus in verse 4 by changing the pronoun from I to we. So he's talking about the people of God here. Point two, tell the coming generation. Look there, verse 4. We will not hide them, them being all of that we have heard and known from verse 3. We will not hide them from their children, but we will tell the coming generation. I think the, the beginning with the negative is just an emphasis. It's a poetical flourish to emphasize this, we will not hide, but we will tell. And what are we to tell? The second half of verse 4, the glorious deeds of the Lord, his might, and the wonders that he has done. We're not just to tell what God has done, his works. Verse 5 also tells us that we are to instruct and to tell people about his words. Verse 5, he established a testimony in Jacob. He appointed a law in Israel. In looking back at history, as uh, God, in, in looking back at history, at how God chose the Jewish people, God was establishing a unique, special relationship, and was revealing Himself in a very particular way, which He had done with no other people in the entire world. And this is most prominently displayed by God's covenant with Israel, as well as His, as his giving them the law. And he only gave this to the Israelites. And because God had specifically chosen them, he then gives them a charge. Look at the second half of verse 5. Which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children. If you're familiar with Deuteronomy 6, this is a part of God's law. It's commanded for fathers, for parents to be telling and instructing their kids in the morning, when you rise up, when you go to bed, when you eat, to be constantly reminding their children of the goodness of God, the wonders, his power, his might, his provision. It is the parent's responsibility to instruct their children. Five generations are mentioned in these two verses to tell a generation, and then they will tell their children and the children yet unborn, and then the next generation. This is something that the Lord foresaw, the goodness of his wisdom in helping us to pass along the goodness of God. And then look in verse 7. Why are we to do this? This, is prove, this provides the reason for why we are instructing. He says there in verse 7, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God but keep his commandments. That they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast and whose spirit was not faithful to God. So the reason we teach the next generation and then that generation teaches the next generation is not just simply to keep a tradition alive, to pass along old stories, No, the purpose of this teaching, of this instruction, is to instill a proper fear and admonition of the Lord so that the next generation can set their hope on God. They must not forget what God has done, his words, and they must not forget what he has said, his word. But verse 8 tells us that there are those who did forget. They openly rebelled against God. They did not listen. As Tim mentioned last week, the the idea of rebellion here is not just an accident. It is an intentional, deliberate, willful disobedience against God. The lack of steadfastness caused their hearts to wander. They lusted after things they shouldn't have. They focused on the immediacy of their external situation, their circumstances that surrounded them, they lost sight of God. They doubted God. They were unfaithful to God, despite everything else that we'll see that they had that God had done for them. Five times the, Psalm, the author of Psalm 78 provides this warning to us. He provides this warning. This is the theme that is highlighted at the beginning of stanzas two, three, four, five, and six is one of the reasons why I highlighted this. This is the emphasis that the author wants to give us this morning. This is a warning. He starts five stanzas with the exact same warning. So I don't want us to miss this. We're going to look at them each individually before we start here. Look with me there in verse 9. The Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. Flip over uh, to verse 17. Yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the most high in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? Verse 32, in spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. Verse 40, how often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe. When he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the fields of Zone. Verse 56, yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies. But they turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow. For they provoked him to anger with their high places, and they moved him to jealousy with their idols. Five times. Now, if you notice in each of these, The crux of them, the point of them, is generally a heart attitude, not necessarily the actions themselves. So we see there repeated phrases, sinned against God, rebelled, tested, they did not believe, forgot, did not remember. God is focused on the heart attitude. Because if you look at verses 34 to 37, we're going to see that one can perform good acts, But the heart was wrong. The heart can still be unfaithful while saying good things. Mark 7. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, Foolishness, all these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. That's Christ himself in Mark 7. The turning away from God here that he is worried about is at first a heart issue, not a behavior issue. In these verses as well, the other thing that we want to point out is the psalmist is calling out multiple generations, two generations specifically, for their rejection of God. He's referring to a distant past, as well as a more contemporaneous people that is relevant and recent to the author. So in stanzas 3, 4, and 5, so verse 17, 32, and 40, the psalmist is referring to the people in the wilderness. These are all people who died prior to entering God's promised land. In stanzas 2 and 6, so verse 9 and 56, He is bringing to light the failure of the Israelites, those Israelites who entered the promised land. Now, uh, when he refers to the Ephraimites, he's not just picking on a particular tribe. If you remember, Ephraimites were one of the 12 tribes of Israel, Um, Ephraim was uh, one of the uh, most prominent tribes in the northern part of uh, the kingdom of Israel. Uh, and they represent essentially all of the people of Israel that had wandered away from God after the promised land, after entering the promised land. I think it's important to note here that the external circumstances of those who did not enter the promised land and the external situation, uh, circumstances of those who did enter the promised land do not matter when it comes to an evil heart. So, with little, like in the wilderness or plenty, whether you have a desert or lush fields god's people still turned away regardless of their external circumstances in both of these situations they turned away from god as well in providing a more contemporary example for his immediate author or for his immediate audience the author is providing a warning to others of his time do you see your brothers up north you see how they have walked away from God? Do you see how God has punished them? You have the same history. You have the same law. You live in the same land as they do. If you are not careful, you can forget God and be just like them. You can be rebellious, ungrateful, impudent. And this is the warning that we tell ourselves, we tell our children, and ultimately we need to tell others. Do not repeat the failures of history. Do not become like our fathers. So naturally the question is, well, this is is a fair warning. This is something he wants to emphasize. How do we keep ourselves from unbelief? How do we keep ourselves from ungratefulness, from rebellion, well, point number three, remember what God has done. Remember what God has done. The first thing that this, the author of Psalm 78 points out is God's deliverance from, uh, from Egypt. Look there at verse 12. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders. In the land of Egypt, in the fields of zone." So while in verse 12 here he doesn't provide a lot of details, The psalmist is referring to God's deliverance from Egypt. Flip over to me now to verse 42, which we did not read earlier, and let me read that passage for you now, looking at verse 42. They did not remember his power, or the day when he redeemed them from the foe, when he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the fields of Zon. He turned the rivers to blood, so they could not drink of their streams. He sent among them swarms of flies, which devoured them. And frogs which destroyed them. He gave their crops to the destroying locust, and the fruit of their labor to the locust. He destroyed their vines with hail, and their sycamores with frost. He gave over their cattle to the hail, and their flocks to thunderbolts. He let loose on them his burning anger, wrath, indignation, and distress, a company of destroying angels. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death but gave their lives over to the plague. He struck down every firstborn in Egypt, the firstfruits of their strength in the tents of Ham. What greater demonstration is there of God's power than of controlling water, insects, reptiles, the very weather and ultimately life and death itself. I think one of these plagues by itself would be enough to say, yes, Lord, you you are God. It took the Egyptians 10 of these. Ultimately, God demonstrated his authority and his power over life and death itself there in verse 51. He struck down every firstborn in the land, from the servant to the Pharaoh himself, no one was spared the angel of destruction except those who had blood smeared on the above and on the doorposts of their doors. The origins of the Jewish Passover, a sign of redemption to God's people through sacrifice and the shedding of blood that can be redemption. After ten of these great works, these great wonders, Pharaoh finally relents, and he says, go, go out, and he frees the Israelite people. 400 years of slavery are over. 400 years. Remember this demonstration of God's power that brought about this deliverance. But after releasing the Israelites, Pharaoh changes his mind, and he sends his army back out to retrieve and bring, them back, bring the Israelites back. When the Egyptian army approaches God's people, and remember the Egyptian army is essentially the or one of the greatest armies in the world at that time. This is, not some, this is not a trifle. This is not a little group of, not a little band of men. This is the greatest army in the world. The people despair. They don't have armor. They don't have weapons. They are trapped against the water, the Red Sea with nowhere to go. But Exodus 14 tells us that God intentionally allowed this situation to happen. Why? So that he could show his people and the Egyptian people who is God. Look there at verse 13. He divided the sea and let them pass through it, them being God's people there. And he made the waters stand like a heap. He repeats it in verse 53. He led them in safety so that they were not afraid, but the sea overwhelmed their enemies. After the Israelites made it through the Red Sea that God has parted, they are walking through a wall of water on either side of them. God lets the water go, and the entire army is washed away. The preeminent military power of the time was soundly defeated and not one Israelite lifted their sword. It was not from their own ability or their might but solely through the power of God Almighty and the wonders that he performed. Remember God's deliverance. The second thing that the psalmist wants us to see is God's guiding them in the wilderness. Look at verse 14. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud and all the night with a fiery light. So after the Israelites escaped Egypt, they don't know exactly where they're going. God hasn't given them a roadmap. They can't whip out their smartphone and pull an address in Google Maps. They have no idea where they're going. They must rely on God. And God leads them with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. A sign of God's divine guidance, his protection, and his immediate presence with his people. Look at verses 52 and 53. Then he led out his people like a sheep, and he guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them in safety so that they were not afraid. Sheep are pretty helpless creatures. I don't know how many people have ever worked with sheep. They're not fast, they're not strong. They're not particularly smart. But God led his flock in safety. If the Egyptians couldn't get them, no one was going to get his people. He said they led them in safety. They did not need to fear, for their God was leading them. And he ultimately delivered them to the promised land. Remember his guidance. The third thing is God's provision of water in the wilderness. Look there at verse 15 and 16. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock, and he caused waters to flow down like rivers. So we see this. um, If you're curious, I'm not going to go just for the sake of time, but you can look at Exodus 17 or Numbers 20 later for the full story. But it does tell you there's not a lot of water in the desert. Much less a lot of water for thousands and thousands and thousands of Israelites who are wandering in the de- in the desert. They cry out to God, "Why have you brought us to the desert that we will die of thirst?" Moses cries out to God, "They're going to stone me. Like I don't think you re- I don't know if you're paying attention down here. They're going to kill me because of what, what you're doing right now." But God provided the water. In verse 14, fifteen, there says they drank abundantly. They had what they needed and more. I don't know how often you've been able to just turn on a faucet and have water. I think it's something we lose in our modern day. They had never experienced anything like this to see water coming from a rock like this. Remember the wonders of the Lord. God provides more than just water. He then provides food for them. Look at verses uh, verse. Well, let me explain a little bit more. Uh, so the fourth thing, I should point that out first, is God's provision of food in the wilderness. So we saw a third was provision of water. The fourth thing is provision of food in the wilderness. So after the water, they're still continuing to grumble against God. They've seen him do the water, but they really do not believe. They spoke against God there in verse 19, saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock. We've seen him do that. He can bring water. Can he give us food? Can he give us meat? They really do not believe. They are testing God. Verse 22. I'm sorry, verse 21. Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God. They did not trust his saving power. Yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven, and he rained down on them manna to eat. He gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate the bread of the angels. He sent them food in abundance. Despite his anger, despite their unbelief, he provided for them. They asked for it, and he gave them grain from heaven. And not just a little bit, he says, in abundance. God was not stingy with his provisions for his people. But it was not just manna, it was also meat. Look there at verse 26. He then caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he led out the south wind. He rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the seas, He let them fall in the midst of their camp, all around their dwellings, and they ate and were filled, for he gave them what they craved. So the God here is the Lord of the air. If there was any doubt from what he did in Egypt, God is the Lord of the air. He is the commander of the winds. He sets in motion the movement of the animals and the birds. And through his sovereign control over his creation, he caused the winds to blow these birds Directly to his people. Instead of destroying them for their unbelief, he rains down meat on them like dust. It was too many to count, so much that they were all filled. Remember the wonders of God. The fifth thing God's promises fulfilled. Flip over to me with me to uh, verses fifty four and fifty five. And he brought them to his holy land, to the mountain which is his, which his right hand had won. He drove out nations before them. He apportioned them for them a possession, and settled the tribes of Israel in their tents. Now before the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt for four hundred years. God had promised to previous uh, forefathers that he would eventually give them the promised land. Much of what we today now know as modern-day Israel. But there was a problem. There were already people living in this promised land. They were mighty. They had fierce warriors, including giants, we're told. The previous generation, the early generation, did not believe that God could help them conquer these people in Canaan. And their punishment for their unbelief was wandering in the wilderness and not being able to enter the promised land. But the second time God brought his people to the promised land, they listened, at least most of, the, most of the time. And it was clear as the people entered the promised land that it was God who was working to give the land to his people. Whether it was the power of stopping the mighty Jordan River, similar to the Red Sea, whether it was the might of destroying Jericho, the sun standing still in the middle of a battle so that his people could win, the conquest of the promised land was clearly not by the might of the Israelite people. It was not because of their military prowess, but it was because of God's divine intervention. We see this time and time again. And after he drives out the nations from the promised land, the Lord then divides up, he apportions the land for each of his tribes. He gives them peace. He set, they settle in the land. God has now given his people the long awaited promised land. He has fulfilled his covenant with his people. 500 plus years later, he had not forgotten. Even if the people had thought that God had forgotten, he had not forgotten. Remember how God fulfills his promises. The sixth thing I think the psalmist wants us to see this morning as we remember what God has done is his judgment on sin. I didn't skip those sections because they're hard. We're going to cover them now. While we think that sins might be little, they are big to a righteous God, especially when we test him, when we question him, when we doubt him. Unbelief and distrust of God strike at his very being. In verses 21 earlier, we saw God's anger kindled. Yet he does not take action. He is merciful there. He provides the manna for his people. But God is also a righteous God. And he cannot let sin go unpunished. Look with me at verses 30 and 31. This is right after he's given them the meat, the birds, the quail. But before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them, and he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. They still didn't believe that God could provide. They still didn't. Yet he provided the meat, But in satisfying their lusts and satiating their lusts and their unbelief, he also brought judgment against them for their self-will, their unbelief. They were ungrateful. So he gave his rebellious people what they deserved. Do not test the mercies of God. Flip over to verse 56 with me. So this is after the people have entered the promised land. What do they do? Right there in um, verse 58. For they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. So they've seen God do everything. He's brought them into the promised land. He's seen them uh, drive out the nations before them. And they immediately turn and worship an idol. Piece of stone, wood, metal, whatever it was made out of. That idol didn't do anything. It has no power. Verse 59, when God heard, he was full of wrath, and he utterly rejected Israel. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind, and delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. He gave his people over to the sword and vented his wrath on his heritage. Fire devoured their young men. Their young women had no marriage song. Their priests fell by the sword, and their widows made no lamentation. We see God's anger kindled yet again, for he is a jealous God. He does not treat idolatry lightly. And because of their rejection of him, God rejects Israel. He lifts his hand of protection from them. The Ark of the Covenant, which was then housed in Shiloh and Ephraim, falls into the hands of the Philistines. The Philistines annihilate entire towns and villages. They're given over to the sword. They're killed. Some are taken into captivity. No one is spared. Remember God's judgment on sin. The seventh thing. We've seen God's judgment. We've also already seen some of his mercy. So the seventh thing that we're going to see this morning that, God want, or that the psalmist wants us to remember It's God's mercy and grace. Remember God's mercy and grace. I already mentioned the author begins five stanzas with examples of God's God's people intentionally rebelling against him. Three times we're told of God's wrath being kindled, and twice we've seen instances of God's judgment being executed. And while we can look throughout the psalm and pick out some mercy and grace here and there, God's mercy is only called out once in the middle stanza. Look at me at verse 32. In spite of all this, so this is after God has done the first judgment, in spite of all of this, they still sinned. They've already been, they've been punished. They've been, in, they've been provided for. And in spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. So he made their days vanish like a breath and their years in terror. When he killed them, they sought him they repented and sought god earnestly they remembered that god was their rock the most high god their redeemer but they flattered him with their mouths they lied to him with their tongues their heart was not steadfast they were not faithful to his covenant so is it the people are not learning He struck them down and finally they repent but only for a moment. It's not genuine. They only want to escape because God is punishing them. There's no heart change. They flatter God. They tell God what he wants to hear but they don't really mean it. Their hearts are fickle. One day, listening to God and worshiping God the next day, blaspheming and rejecting him altogether. Yet, God was compassionate. Verse 38. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity, and he did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. He remembered their frailty, their weakness, their weakness. He created us. Of course, He knows how weak and frail we are. How our hearts and minds can change one minute to the next, one day to the next, one week to the next. He knows that we need to eat, drink, our physical needs. We are but a breath. The same word as Ecclesiastes, a havel, passing away. I think the psalmist is intentionally referring back to Exodus 34 here. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will, no ma- by, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers against their children, their children's children to the third and fourth, generation. Slow to anger and abounding in love. How good and kind God is for not destroying us on our very first offense. Or our second offense. Our third offense. How many offenses do they make against God here? Remember God's mercy. And I think all of this leads us to point number eight. 3.8. God's faithfulness. Especially to an unfaithful people. I think throughout the psalm, we can see displays of God's faithfulness to us despite the people's unfaithfulness. When God delivers his people from Egypt and he leads them through the wilderness, he knows what they're going to do, yet he provides for them. He provides water and food, he knows what they're going to do, and he still provides for them. He is faithful and compassionate, he drives out the nations. He helps them settle the promised land. He knows what they're going to do. Worship gods made out of stone, metal. These idols have no power. But then he is faithful to his word. They do not honor their side of the covenant. God is faithful to honor his side of the covenant. He allows his people to be destroyed, wiped out. They are crushed by the Philistines because of their wickedness. This future looks bleak. How is God faithful here? But the Lord is not going to allow his people to be downtrodden forever. He has punished his people, but he has not cast them off. Look at verse 65. Then the Lord awoke as from a sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine, and he put his adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame. Now, these metaphors that the author is using here does not mean that God literally sleeps or that God can be drunk on wine. These are metaphors. These are uh, pictures of God that we can understand because it certainly looked like God was sleeping. God arose as somebody who is uh, energized with drink of, of anger, and he puts his adversaries... To route. For the sake of time, I'm not going to walk through all of it, but if you want to refer to it, you can look up 1 Samuel 5 and 6, which recounts how God intervened and got the Ark of the Covenant back to his people. Through this, uh, he shows his power over all of the Philistine gods. The Philistines, as a test of God, put the Ark of the Covenant on a cart drawn by two cows who have never had a yoke. So, I don't know if you've ever worked with animals. If you have an animal that's never had a yoke with no driver, the animals are not going to do anything. But guess where the animals go? Directly back to God's people. God miraculously brings the ark back to the Israelites, yet the people still do not return to the Lord. Still, they just, how did this ark get back to us? There's no driver, the cows are wandering through the fields. Then the people call out for a king, for Saul. Saul is appointed king, but ultimately the Lord rejects Saul because of his willful disobedience. Verse 67, he rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. He chose David his servant. And took him from the sheepfolds, from following the nursing ewes, he brought them to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. In rejecting those who disobeyed him, God established David, King David, the youngest son of Jesse, he rejected Shiloh, which had rejected him, even though the Ark of the Covenant was still there. Was, was there? And David brought the Ark to Mount Zion, just outside Jerusalem, where the temple was eventually built. This is the next resting place of the Ark and of God's presence. David remembered what God had done for his people. David kept his covenant with God, and thus God blessed him and his kingdom. Under David's rule, the people defeated their enemies throughout the land and grew in prominence. As we see, despite all the people's unfaithfulness, culminating in David, God faithfully completed his covenant by finally securing his kingdom and establishing a place of worship. Through all the turmoil, through hundreds of years, we see God faithfully working. Remember God's faithfulness to his people, especially when we are unfaithful to him. So recap, remember God's deliverance, remember God's guidance, remember God's provision, God's justice, God's mercy, God's faithfulness. Remember God's power, His might, and His wonders. Great. So what? What does it have to do with us? I'm not going back to Egypt. I don't know anything about this. I'm not going to the promised land. I'm a Gentile. So, So what? Glad you asked. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 10. writing to the church in Corinth. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness." So basically, Paul is summing up all of Psalm 78 in like five verses. Why can't I just done that faster? I don't know. And he says in verse 6, Now these things took place as an example for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. So the Israelites were eyewitnesses to God's miraculous power in Egypt. They saw the plagues. As they were walking through the waters, their mouths were agape, walking with walls of water on either side of them. They saw manna fall from the sky. They saw the birds fall from the sky. They saw with their own eyes the walls of Jericho fall down. They saw God's power. They saw God's might. They saw God's wonders. And they still rejected him. They committed idolatry. And sometimes they worshipped their stomach. They worshipped other gods. These idols could not do anything. These idols had not done any of these wonders. After everything they had seen, how could they reject God? All of this was written down for our instruction. Brothers I want to caution you this morning... If you are tempted here to just think how foolish the people of God were, they were foolish, but do not think that you were stronger or better or more well-equipped. Our hearts are just as prone to unbelief, to ingratitude. You and I are not above forgetting either. Just like the people of Israel, we often view uh, God's goodness to us as dependent on our external situation, our circumstances. God is good when the going is good. But when the going gets tough, yeah, I don't know. God, nah, God doesn't know what he's doing. The unbelief, the doubt begins to creep in. I'm going to try to put this in perspective of the Israelites. You know, God's wondrous works in Egypt or his parting of the Red Sea doesn't really matter when your lips are cracked, your tongue is swollen, you're in a hundred degree heat in the desert. That doesn't do you any good. Or maybe you're remembering the water that God provided for you in that moment. But that thirst that was quenched, doesn't help when your stomach is gnawing at you because you haven't eaten in three days. See how easy it is to forget? Our immediate circumstances influence us. While your and my wilderness may not be a literal desert with no water or food, God will and has used wildernesses in your life and will use wildernesses potentially in the future in our own lives to test us, to strip us of our self-sufficiency, to test our faith, to test our dependence upon God. When the going gets tough, how do you handle it? How have you handled it? Have you examined yourself for ingratitude? For unbelief? What is God doing? Is He really in control here? Is God paying any attention to me? I think there's a difference between, in the moment, being weak in flesh, saying, asking God, what is He doing? and asking in unbelief, in doubt. 1 Corinthians ten thirteen. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it he will provide a way of escape that you may endure it. I think it's worth pointing out again that it wasn't just affliction that caused God's people to uh, wander. After God finally provided them to the promised land, God had fulfilled his promise, everything was going well, God's people also turned away. So whether an affliction or an affluence, I used some Western poetry there if you didn't notice, Affliction or affluence, the Israelites forgot God, and as such, they are an example to us. Take heed, lest you fall. This warning uh, has a very personal meaning for me here this morning, as I watched my own father falter in this. He led other men to Christ. He led Bible studies. He was a leader in our community. But when the going got tough, he forgot. He doubted. He lost sight of who God was and is. And I do not want that for my family. Having lived through it, I do not want it for yours. Psalm 78 provides an example, a travail of the Israelites this morning. They forgot. When my father ultimately turned back to the Lord before he passed, it was not without a wake-up call from God. When we turn away from God... It's a robe with consequences that we do not want to have to face. We do not and should not think that we can ever test the mercies of God. When we're confronted with things like this, we need to repent. Don't just flatter God. He knows your heart. You can say the right thing, but if your heart is not there, God knows. You cannot be mocked. Be vigilant. Be vigilant for yourself and be vigilant for your fellow brothers and sisters. Take heed lest you fall too. But with every temptation, God will also provide a way of escape. Amen. Take heed, lest you fall. Second application. Remember, have I said it enough times? <laughs> remember, when we're tempted to doubt God, we're tempted to rebel, when we're tempted to sin. I think the, the lesson of Psalm seventy-eight is to remember what God has done, His glorious deeds, His power, His wonders. The examples in Psalm seventy-eight this morning are highlighted for us. They're important for us to remember, even though they're thousands of years in the past. Because it is the same God that we worship today. The same God who performed those miracles is watching us and listening to us now. It's important to recognize that. He still has that same power, the same might, the same wonder. But I also want you this morning to personalize what you remember. So if you have a pen or a writing utensil, or if you don't, if you have a phone, I want you to pull it out right now because I'm going to give you some homework. School hasn't started, I know, but I'm going to give you all some homework. <laughs> Jacob's over here laughing at me. We're just talking about school. I thought about this after we printed the liturgy, so I apologize for not having it in the liturgy, but I want you to write the seven things down. I want you to go home and think about them. So God's deliverance. God's guidance, God's provision, God's promises, God's justice, God's mercy, and God's faithfulness. So deliverance, Guidance, provision, promises, justice, mercy, and faithfulness, seven of them. I want you to take these categories home. I want you to think about them. Remember how God has worked specifically in your life for each of these seven categories. Don't just think about it. I want you to write them down. That way, when you are tempted to doubt God next week, next month, five years from now, you potentially have something to go back to and look and see how God has worked in your life. You can remember how God has been good to you. Then if you're ambitious, you can write a poem like Psalm 78. I'm going to help you cheat on your homework. I don't know how many times, I never received homework, and then the teacher was like, here's the answer. But I'm going to provide some pointers to you this morning on how God has been good to us. Remember how God has fulfilled his promises. The last stanza of Psalm 78 rejoices in God establishing his kingdom, of appointing David who shepherds his people with uprightness and integrity of heart. But that kingdom is not the ultimate kingdom. That kingdom is a foreshadow for another kingdom, one of David's descendants, Jesus Christ, who is the great shepherd, who leads his people with perfect humility, perfect strength, perfect care. We read the Apostles' Creed this morning. The incarnation, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, these core foundational principles to our faith, were the fulfillment of God's perfect plan that he had thought out before the foundation of the world was even laid. Remember God's promises. Secondly, remember God's deliverance through resurrection. Death has long been the ultimate equalizer. No matter who you are, we are mortal beatings and we will ultimately perish. While the mystery of eternal life was cloudy in the Old Testament in these In Psalm 78, the New Testament makes it explicit. Reading from 1 Corinthians 15, For this perishable body must be put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death! Where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Our God has the power over life and death. And in Christ's resurrection has defeated that final enemy, death himself. It is no longer something we must fear. Praise God. Number three, remember the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit's role in the Old Testament was much different than it is today uh, for us in the New Testament. After Christ ascended into heaven, he promised a helper, a comforter, that is the Holy Spirit, who would be that seal of salvation in Christ and who dwells with us, as 1 Corinthians 6 says, in our bodies, in our temples. Temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comforts. The Holy Spirit protects, supports. It assists us in our continued struggle against sin in this life, based on Romans 6, as we continually struggle to become more Christ-like. Remember the promise of the Holy Spirit. Remember God's provision through his word. While the Lord had certainly revealed himself in parts to the Israelites in Psalm 78, the Lord had not yet fully revealed his purpose in Christ. Brothers and sisters, today we have the complete closed word of God here in the Bible, where the mysteries of the gospel have been made known. We can remember God's provision to us through his word, that spiritual manna, the Bible. I can keep going. I don't want to give away all the answers. I want you to have time to to intentionally have some answers as well. But use this as an opportunity to remember what God has done in your life. And this can be something you can look back on. The third point of application, and then we'll be done, I promise. I don't know. Are we actually nearing an hour? I probably should have timed myself. The third point of application is tell. Psalm 78 is explicit. Tell what the Lord has done to the children so that they may have a hope. They may set their hope on God and may not forget. And then that generation tells the next generation. A generation yet unborn. Fathers, I'm going to talk to you first. This starts with us. Paul says in Ephesians 6 Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The Lord has called us out specifically as the head of the household to do this. This is our role and responsibility. How have you been telling your kids? what God has done for you. Mothers, you have a critical role as well. Timothy, Paul's right-hand man, was brought up in the faith by his mother and grandmother. How are you looking to pass on your faith to your children? Moms and dads, this instruction begins in the home through things like personal devotions. So you yourself have to be walking with the Lord. And then it expands to family time in the word. Family worship. Do not outsource your responsibility. Do not outsource. The church and others within the church can certainly be a help, they can certainly aid you. But this is your responsibility first and foremost. Now, the thought of having dedicated family time together can be intimidating. But I want to encourage you that if you're not doing something now, you need to be starting to do something. You'll never be perfect, but doing nothing is not an option. You don't need to be writing out elaborate lesson plans. You don't need to be writing out a a liturgy. It could be as simple as reading a short passage, asking your kids a question, praying. You don't have to sing. If If you can't play anything but the radio, you don't need to sing. But singing can and should be an option as well. You can use the list that he just gave you. Start from there. Do one a day. There's seven of them. There's seven days in a week. Your first week is covered. You You know what you're doing this week. Do something. Do it in the morning, around the dinner table, at night, whatever works best for your family. We must be telling our kids about God so that their hope is in God. I know there's a lot of kids here, so parents, close your ears for a second. Kids, are you paying attention? Do I have all the eyeballs? When was the last time you asked your parents if you could do Bible time? Try it this week. There's not as many kids. I know there's several families out of town. Try it. Uh, Report back to me. I don't want you to get your public parents in trouble. Now I'm going to get in trouble with all your parents. Kids, you can encourage your parents as well to do Bible time. Kids, are is your hope in the Lord? You can do your own personal devotions as well. Remember the Lord that you may not forget him. Grandparents, do not underestimate your influence on younger generations. I don't know about you, but I loved hearing stories from my grandparents. They were able to influence my life. They were able to set an example. They were able to instruct me in ways that my parents just had a different perspective. And I learned some very valuable life lessons from my grandparents. You have a role as well. In church, just because you don't have kids yet or maybe you're never going to have kids doesn't mean you can't be involved as well. Do not count yourself out. Whether it's nursery Sunday school, watching somebody else's kids for a date night, or just correcting kids around you. Everyone in the church has a responsibility of passing along the faith. Just the other day, a father shared with me how another young man in our church who has no kids spent some time with one of his children. He talked with him. He sat down with him and instructed him. And that made an impact in that kid's life. Such that his son is now going home and is asking his dad more about the Bible and more about God at home. You never know how you can help us parents out. It's hard being diligent and consistent day in and day out. We need some help. Church, you can help us as well. But our telling others is not just limited to our kids. We are to be sharing this hope that we have in the power of our Lord God who can raise the dead. We should be proclaiming this to everyone. We are to be making disciples. Do not hide your light under a basket. The psalm is very honest about the failings of God's people and includes a stark warning not to repeat the failures of the past. How do we ensure that we're not unbelieving? We remember God's power, his might, and his wonders. And by remembering his wonderful works, we see his goodness, his mercy, his compassion, his faithfulness. By remembering what God has done, we can fight ingratitude, rebellion, unbelief, God is good. Listen, tell, remember. May we be a steadfast steadfast people that remember God, that set our hope in God, and that remember his glorious works and follow his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We are so thankful for your word and the examples laid before us. Examples of failure. Examples of rebellion. Examples of judgment. Warnings for us, instruction for us, for us to take heed that we may learn that we may not follow the same example. Lord, I pray that you will guide us, help us to be a steadfast people, focused on you, faithful to your word. Help us not to have, uh, let external circumstances dictate how we view you. We be sure. May we be straight. May we arise and tell others about you that we may not forget your works, but keep your commandments. May we set our hope in you. We pray all this in your Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.